recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. Welcome to episode number 38 and the very first one of 2021 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchie, along with Ewan Christie. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend and you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can subscribe to us on YouTube and SoundCloud as well, if that fits you better. Um, and most important of all, please sign up for our newsletter. Um, we do send out uh, e- emails when there's new episodes uh, and other show information. You can do that at prlawpodcast.club. So here we are, you in 2021. How, how, how are things? How was the holidays? How's the start of the year? Cameron, Happy New Year, my friend. Happy New Very Year happy to you as well. You. It's it's great to be back. Um, you know, hey, it's a good thing that absolutely nothing has happened over the two weeks <laughs> that we didn't have a show, so we didn't miss anything, right? Been it's a been sleepy, really and sleepy start tranquil. to the year. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it was funny. Like I know you and I were talking about this, and I certainly was uh, saying this to to a, a few friends. The idea that when that clock struck midnight signaling the end of the year that everything was going to miraculously transform and be calm, tranquil, back to normal. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that there are some optimistic people out there who, who felt that way. I, I felt sort of like, you know, Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh sitting there <laughs> thinking like, what's everybody celebrating about? Um, and here we are. And I, you know, I hate to say that I was, I was right, but if the first few weeks are any indication, then, uh, it looks as though maybe I was Cam. Yeah. It's interesting what you just said though. You know, it was a couple of years ago because like I'm a pretty optimistic person, I think. And, you know, usually when, when the new year rolls around, I am kind of excited about, you know, things in the following year or, you know, maybe places I'll travel to or, or things we might do, things like that. But a couple of years ago, my mom actually told me, she said, when new year rolls around, she starts to get worried about what bad things might happen in the next year. Like what's, cause every year is going to have its, its crises and its problems. And I thought, huh, that's a, I've never even thought about that. But then since she's mentioned it now, I do think about it. And it reminded me when you just said that you're, you're looking ahead and going, you know, what is there to celebrate about? And I know this year is quite specific because we are in the middle of a pandemic among and a, and a treasonous president in the United States. So there's certainly reasons, but I also wonder if it's as we get older, we start to look at it that way. Do you think there's age in there? Well, probably. I mean, and, and to your point, um, you weren't seeing 40 and 50 somethings uh, on <laughs> television celebrating New Year's Eve. It was, you know, predominantly 20, probably early 30 something. So, yeah, I'm sure there's probably a certain element of that, that as you get older, um, the idea of a new year being this sort of. You know, new beginning, new opportunities, new adventures. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're probably slightly more jaded given <laughs> your years of experience on the planet to know that that likely is not the case. Um, 
I don't know. Maybe, but maybe it should be. Maybe, maybe we should. Maybe I specifically should be a little more optimistic. I'm kind of interested in this this line of thought, though. Um, you know, like when you're younger, you do you, you go through school, you graduate high school, go to university, get a degree, you know, internships, get a job, get married, settle down, buy a house, etc. Obviously, that's not everyone's path, but it seems like there's always a very clear next step. Oh, now you go to this. Now you go to this. But when you do get to the point where you've had a family and you're living in one place, it's kind of I think about it now, I go, like, what's the next, what's the next step then? Um, and I think this, a lot of people think about this too, as they get older, but I've really digressed here. Yeah, I guess I have too. <laughs> All right, you and well, let's get right into it then. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. I should note, though, that I am still very optimistic about 2021. <laughs> it's going to be difficult, I think, at the beginning. Uh, but overall, I think we're going to be better off at the end than we are right now. You and what have you got happening in the uh, legal world? Well, Cam, I'm, I'm going to get to my main piece in a minute, but I wanted to quickly, quickly just um, check in on this this subject that we've tackled before. As you may have heard, perhaps there was a siege on the U.S. Capitol, Cam. Um and yeah. the reason I wanted to just sort of very, very quickly address that, I'm, I'm sure you're going to tackle it on, uh, or perhaps tackle is the wrong or poor choice of words, but <laughs> some regard, is, you know, we, we talked about this on a few episodes last year, the idea that if you're going to engage in questionable behavior, that could compromise the reputation of your employer or uh, somehow be inconsistent with its employee policies and codes of conduct, that you could very well end up losing your job. And I mean, I know we've seen some good examples of this, Cam, but arguably, I don't know that there's a better example than, and I'm I'm sure you probably saw this photo that went viral of the employee from Navistar Direct Marketing, who was part of the siege. And the man's photo was circulated on social media. And for whatever reason, in addition to wearing a MAGA hat, he also decided to wear his Navistar company employee ID, <laughs> which was yes. hanging around his neck. Well, wouldn't you know it, somehow that got back to the company. And after reviewing the evidence, Navistar issued a statement saying that they were terminating the man for just cause. I feel like we're beating a dead horse on this issue at this point, Cam, but employees, please conduct yourselves accordingly uh, when you are in public and understand and recognize that it could have very serious repercussions regarding your relationship with your employer up to and including termination for just causes are uh, this one's this individual really really bizarre though like why was he wearing his work pass like did he just swing by the insurrection after work or what (laughs) like it makes no sense i have no idea along these same lines though um it did remind me of the protests in Hong Kong in 2019, because at the very beginning, there was a break-in of the LegCo here, which was very similar. But the one thing that was different is a lot of the Hong Kong people had masks on uh, because they knew that they were going to probably face arrest later. I couldn't believe how many people in that siege just didn't didn't cover up their identity at all. 
to the point of even agreeing to be photographed by news media. So it just blows my mind, that stuff. But yes, I, I should mention, I'm going to get into a little bit of this um, coming up a little bit later in the show. Okay. Well, I, I know I'll, I'll move on. I know we got a lot of stuff, so I'll move on to the, the main uh, sure. subject I wanted to sort of tackle today. And that was a story cam that kind of got buried um, earlier in the week. And this is the story of Alphabet Inc., you know, the parent company of Google. And employees and contractors at Alphabet Inc., they launched a union with a few hundred workers. And now, you know, at last tally, I think that the number is just over 600. So we're only looking at about 2% of Google, you know, the, the mm-hmm. parent company's workforce. Um, the Alphabet Workers Union, as it's called, it's um, they're, they're affiliated with the Communications Workers of America. And Cam, the CWA, that's the, the largest communications and media labor union in the U.S. It's um, it's headquartered in D.C. Represents you know about seven hundred thousand members in both the public and private sector. They they even have um, a number of locals here in Canada with about you know I think about eight thousand, just under ten thousand members. It's important to keep in mind, Cam, that we're talking about a minority union here, two percent, right? Mm-hmm. So. You know, labor laws in the U.S. they sort of dictate that you need thirty percent of a company's workers to express interest in joining a union before you can have a a, certi- a certification vote. And then if more than 50% of the employees ultimately vote in favor of unionization, then, you know, at that point, the, the National Labor Relations Board can, can get involved and can certify the union as eligible for collective bargaining. So, you know, we're talking 2% here. Of course, that's 2% to start. We don't know where this is going to end up. Um, but that means that, you know, Alphabet, technically, they don't have to negotiate with these with these union members. Um, they don't have to recognize the union as a as a collective bargaining agent for employees. But it does allow the union to file grievances on behalf of its members to management and obviously to to act as a mouthpiece on behalf of those members. So it's it's a pretty big deal. And with everything that was going on, the story just didn't get the coverage that it probably should have because it's it is a big deal i did see that news um i i guess if they have the right to now i'm going to look at this from the from the employer side if they don't really have any strike power or you know can demand collective bargaining how does this sort of grievance process work because it sounds like maybe the employer could just not take it seriously or ignore it. And there's not much recourse for the union. Yeah. Well, I mean, ultimately, ultimately you're right. Um, but at a certain point, Cam, it becomes about optics, right? And as membership grows, as it no doubt will in this case, I mean, look, are we going to get to a place where, um, you know, greater than 50% of you know, Google employees or, or alphabet employees are going to take the position that they want a union. I, I mean, I doubt it. I think it's un, I think it's highly unlikely, um, just given sort of the inherent perks um, that Google employees have historically received. But, you know, I do think that this is a big deal because it's it's sort of the first of its kind in Silicon Valley. The first time we've sort of seen um, a union really make inroads into one of these companies. And, you know, I think sort of the first year is going to be a really interesting indicator as to where this is going to go. And as a company, yeah, what what do you do? I mean, I suspect they're probably going to at least hear these members out 
for the simple reason that I, I think the the press and hey, you're the PR guy, so you can you can tell me, but I suspect that the bad press that might follow by choosing to simply ignore them could perhaps only bolster their their cause and, of course, attract attention through the media, um, maybe attract attention at other tech companies. So, yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting story. So um, what, what caused this? Like, I mean, Google's been around, Alphabet's been around a, a relatively long time now, I guess, a couple of decades. Um, what was their primary, you know, motivation to form this sort of pseudo union? One thing to keep in mind, Cam, is that you know, 50%, we're talking almost half of Google's employees are either temporary staff, vendors, or contractors. So they, you know, this TVC is the acronym, um, as they're often referred to. Um, what does that stand yeah, for? They make up about half of, pardon me? What does TVC stand for? <laughs> TVC <laughs> is temporary, temporary staff. So temporary vendors, contractors. Oh, TVC. T- temporary vendors, contractors. Okay, cool. Thanks. You got it. You got <laughs> it. I always say, I think actually think of if there's any David Bowie fans out there, I think of the song TVC one five. That's what I think of. But anyway, I think of a TV I, channel. I, it seems like a channel name. Okay. TVC. But anyway, go ahead. Right. Well, anyway, maybe they could come up with a better acronym. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't make the acronym up. That's what it is. Vendors. Um, yeah. Staff vendors, contractors, TVCs. They make up about half of Google's total workforce. Um, and as we've seen before, Cam, with contract workers, you know, we're talking about precarious employment in a lot of cases. They're not afforded the same protections and benefits under the law, typically receive um, lower rates of pay, um, sick pay, vacation pay, all of these sorts of issues are concerns. And I, th- and I think that, you know, the union was able to sort of latch on to that issue. But then on top of that, you know, Google, they've they've had some bad press over the last few years, as we know, mm-hmm. right? Um, you might recall in, in 2018, there were thousands of, of employees that walked out actually all over the world, Google employees in protest of uh, the company's handling of, of sexual misconduct allegations against the executives. Um, there was also the issue of the pushing out of uh, Timnit, uh, Timnit Jebru, who was you know, the, the AI research scientist mm-hmm. uh, who spoke out about diversity issues at the company. Um, you know, I think all of these things were great fodder for CWA, who, you know, ha- has sort of turned its focus to a number of these issues, right? Issues of diversity and protections for, for TVCs, protecting workers against reprisals for, for speaking up. So I'm not entirely shocked um, that big tech is starting to face a bit of a reckoning around this stuff. Yeah. And I, you know, this is the first time, as far as I know that we've discussed sort of the issue of labor unions on this podcast. Um, and now it seems to me that the unions were quite powerful in, in, in the U S and Canada, you know, back in the fifties and sixties mainly, and especially in the past 20 years, maybe or 10, uh, that, that the influence of, of these unions has, has waned quite a bit. I mean, in your opinion, is, is this, do you see the pendulum swinging the other way again? I mean, do you think that we are going to go down this path where, you know, employees are going to start banding together to sort of, you know, bargain for their own, uh, their rights and benefits from the company? Yeah. I mean, I, I doubt it, I guess to put it huh. in short, I, I doubt it. I don't think this is, you know, representative of a, of a sea change with regard to unionization. Um, I mean, hey, I, I, I could be wrong in that regard. I think it is sort of interesting, this idea of minority unions, that unions are starting to sort of get on board with a new way of approaching um, 
unionization in terms of so maybe you can't get that 50 percent majority where you can actually go in and legitimately collectively bargain on behalf of all employees but maybe there are some other ways that you can you can continue to be relevant because keep in mind right i mean these individuals who have joined this union cam i mean they will be paying uh their union dues so um you know they're going to want and expect something in return for 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 that money so I, I think tech is sort of a really interesting profession because it somehow, for whatever reason, has remained completely exempt, at least as far as I'm aware, um, to to pressures from unionization. So it, it's almost a bit of an untapped market in many regards. So I'm not surprised um, that a union like CWA is is making inroads there. And again, I think that that's why this is such an interesting story. Because I don't even know that this was something that um, employees in, in the big tech sector would even consider as remotely realistic. So what's the result going to be? I mean, are we going to have, are we going to start to see these sorts of um, minority unions emerging at other big tech companies? And if so, what, you know, what does that mean over the long term for big tech? How are they going to address that? Um, does that mean they're going to start to to reframe the way that they um, structure their employment relationships? Is it going to impact their, their policies and procedures? Is it going to impact their hiring practices with, with regard to, you know, issues of, of diversity and, and harassment? Um, again, you know, it's just, we, we don't know, but I think that that's why this is such, such a big deal. Um, because it's something employers are going to have to address. And I think it's something that employees are going to be paying attention to at other big tech companies. A lot of these tech companies, I mean, they're, they're knowledge based, the knowledge economy, right? So they're they don't have a lot of people like you know GM used to have working the the lines in the, in the factories um, and things like that. And a lot of the staff in these technology companies are quite well compensated um, because of their 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 capability. And I mean, they've been quite good at you know, scaling up if they do need um, a lot of employees or a lot of people for, for something such as, for instance, content moderation. Um, Facebook has something like 30,000 content moderators, but they're able to go to a, a contractor and, you know, get 30,000 people from somebody else who can do this work and thus avoid the benefits and, and, and the problems and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I am a bit surprised it happened at Alphabet because of those reasons. It's not a it's not a normal industry, and I think you know tech has tried to keep it that way, you know to 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 avoid precisely this. So yeah, I, I mean I'm not an expert on this at all. You know this much better than me, but I suspect this isn't going to be a uh, you know a sea change or a wave of uh, unionization in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I mean I suspect you're probably right, but again, what's sort of interesting is that when we look at the pressures that that Google has faced that likely resulted in the union getting in in the first place. <clears throat> it didn't really, I mean, putting the TVC uh, issue aside for a moment in terms of, you know, any potential precarious work for for temporary employees, vendors, and contractors. I mean, from a, for, at least from a public perspective, the real issue was, again, the handling of the sexual misconduct allegations the controversy around Timnit uh, Jabru, and and those issues didn't really have anything to do with compensation, right? It wasn't really a matter of employees not being paid enough. Um, it spoke more to sort of cultural elements going on within the company 
in terms of, you know, diversity protocols, toxic work environment, issues around harassment and sexual misconduct, those sorts of issues. And those are issues that um, organizing through a union could likely address, even though the pay may not necessarily be before, you know, at the forefront. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. We talked earlier about the uh, insurrection slash protest slash riot uh, at the U.S. Capitol this week, and I'm not going to go into that part, but I do want to take a look at how Twitter and Facebook have handled it, uh, kind of with a focus on, on on Facebook, because it's been a dramatic few days in so many areas, and there's so many layers to this. So I want to try and dig through that and find sort of the the positives and the negatives and the, and the learning opportunities uh, from it. Um, but before we get into that, I think, you know, we have talked about the issue of social media companies on this show quite a bit. I mean, they do make for, for good case studies. So um, if, if you want to listen to this, if anybody would like to go back and hear some of the things we've talked about um, on episode 25, you know, we talked about uh, Mark Zuckerberg being confronted by angry employees uh, at Facebook over how, how the company handled Donald Trump. Episode 17, Edward Siegel, a PR expert, uh, looked at Facebook's fumbles from a PR perspective. Episode 15, we looked at Trump and Twitter. And episode 13, an advertiser boycott. Um, so there's lots to sort of consider around this, this subject. I think those, those, those episodes are kind of must-listen if you're interested in the same. I think that the, the big picture here really is tech is, is under the gun. It's, it's got a lot of scrutiny of the industry at the moment uh, from a number of different governments and organizations, sort of about how they manage data, data security, uh, you know, monopoly powers is another another one that comes up quite a bit. Um, but I really feel like this was kicked off in earnest with the Cambridge Analytica scandal from 2016. Uh, and that's when, you know, a, a company, a vendor was able to harvest a lot of personal information um, off Facebook and then use that information to help uh, the Republican campaign for the 2016 election. And I think that really opened a lot of people's eyes into how these systems work, because, you know, I kind of assumed that people knew it was advertising based on data. But I really realize now that most people have no clue uh, how this stuff works. And so that was really an eye opening moment. But for Facebook in particular, uh, you and, and I told you off off the top as well, there's so much here that, um, you know, we can't get into all of it. So I, I want to focus on Facebook because they still are the largest social network in the world and it's not close. Um, and so they, they've really been in the news quite a bit, actually going back several months. And and when we look at how Facebook has handled this, it's important to sort of we understand sort of where where they've come from. Following me so far? I think so. Okay. Um, yeah. Do a big monologue here. Uh, anyway, so... <laughs> Facebook began taking action actually just in August uh, before August 2020. Um, you know, Facebook and Zuckerberg had largely largely been resisting calls to to either, you know, ban President Trump or tag his articles or, or his posts or whatever it might be. Uh, but that changed in August 2020 uh, and they restricted the conspiracy movement QAnon, but didn't ban it outright, but restricted that account quite a bit. And this was the first time that Facebook really stepped into manage content because all along they've been telling the public that they're just a platform 
a platform and they have no control over what people post or how people comment or what they say. Um, that's not something they want to get into. And I can understand why. Um, but you know, the pressure has just become too great. Uh, in September, they got rid of uh, political ads for seven days before the election. Uh, they eventually banned all the groups that support uh, QAnon, you know, more limits on political advertising in October, uh, you know, in November, in the couple of weeks before the election, you know, they changed the algorithms to make sure that, um, you know, the, the, the actual credible news articles were the ones appearing and not ones from kind of conspiracy sites, which was a big, a big step. And as soon as the election was over, Facebook reverted back to the one that promotes the uh, conspiracy information, which is unfortunate. Now, but Cam, just to just sort of just jump in. Sure. I mean, isn't that part of what conservatives and well, I don't want to say conservatives broadly, um, but at least Trump supporters specifically are so infuriated about that effectively you have Facebook censoring particular content that doesn't speak to. I, I mean, I, I know we're calling it propaganda or um, but it doesn't necessarily support a particular political agenda. And therefore, Facebook has decided to just simply block it. Facebook's rationale really is about things that lead to violence um, or things of that severity. So the QAnon, for instance, I mean, there was a guy who showed up at that pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. with a with a gun or a rifle. I can't remember what it was, but that's sort of how they justified it, because you're right. Conservative groups and I, mean, I think anyone would if their speech was kind of um, affected this way or banned by Facebook would feel kind of picked on. So. So, yes, this is why they've had such a such a hard time. And I think they've made it worse because we could go around in circles, you and, and with other people as well, just saying what should or shouldn't be on these social networks and, you know, what response responsibility Facebook has um, in that decision. Anyway, uh, in November 5th, uh, Facebook banned a large group called Stop the Steal. And that's when this really started sort of gaining momentum. And that phrase has become quite quite powerful, um, obviously. And then um, later, Facebook and Twitter uh, were fighting back against Trump's baseless claims of uh, election fraud by putting labels on his posts. And I saw these a lot on Twitter. You know, he would say something about the election and there would be an, an, a message underneath saying something like, you know, this this version, you know, is not credible or something like that. It was it was good, I think. I think that's kind of a best way to do it in a way, especially if it's not factual and it's a, a person with a lot of influence. Uh, I think that's another issue with the president. Anyway, this has obviously continued and Facebook has really tried to, to, to be hands off, you know, this entire time. And Zuckerberg even went, to a Senate hearing, uh, November 17th, and, and said that they would give assurances that action would be taken against any disinformation um, related to the election, and in the sense that it would incite violence. So that was a key point that they made. Then, January 6th, the day, Facebook and Twitter both suspend President Donald Trump from posting to their platforms following the storming of the U.S. Capitol. This, to me, really was quite fascinating. But I also think they didn't really have a choice anymore. So Twitter went first. Facebook and Instagram followed uh, in the evening, all of them saying that Trump wouldn't be able to post for 24 hours following violations in its policies. And these are really around the video that he, he released, the speech that he released before the Capitol was stormed and after. So those were two of the key videos that these social networks felt were not okay. And then January 7th, Zuckerberg announces that the risk of allowing Trump to use the platform is too great 
following that mob attack. And he said Trump's account will be locked for at least the next two weeks and possibly uh, indefinitely. So that's where we are at today. Now, the PR side. And I think, and we've talked on this show, Facebook has been a mess from the PR side. And I think a lot of that does have to do with Mark Zuckerberg specifically. So on January 7th, Ewan, just before midnight, uh, Mark Zuckerberg posted to his own Facebook page. I'm not going to read the whole statement, but I want to read a couple of points that I think are pertinent. I will put a link in the show notes uh, to see the, the, the full text. This is how he opened his message. The shocking events of the last 24 hours clearly demonstrate that President Donald Trump intends to use his remaining time in office to undermine the peaceful and lawful transition of power to his elected successor, Joe Biden. His decision to use his platform to condone rather than condemn the actions of his supporters at the Capitol building has rightly disturbed people in the U.S. and around the world. We removed these statements yesterday because we judged that their effect and likely their intent would be to provoke further violence. Following the certification of the election results by Congress, the priority for the whole country must now be to ensure that the remaining 13 days and the days after inauguration pass peacefully and in accordance with established democratic norms. I'm going to jump to the last two lines here. So again, Zuckerberg, quote, we believe the risks of allowing the president to continue to use our service during this period are simply too great. Therefore, we are extending the block we have placed on his Facebook and Instagram accounts indefinitely and for at least the next two weeks until the peaceful transition of power is complete. How do you feel about that? <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know, Cam. I feel I feel a lot of things about that. I, I mean, I think if you're going to, if you're if you were going to take the perspective or the approach that he should be banned from these platforms, um, again, this sort of strikes me as shooting fish in the barrel. Um, I don't really see. I understand there was an arguably violent insurrection on on the U.S. Capitol. Um, fair enough, and and it, it's sort of a no brainer at that point to cut him off. But I don't really see what was so markedly different a week prior to the violent insurrection, such mm -hmm. that if they were going to take that position and cut him off entirely, why it wasn't simply done then um, as opposed to just doing it now. Uh, it, it sort of seems almost, again, like paying lip service to an issue that was present um, prior to this just insane and unprecedented action at the at the U.S. Capitol. As an aside, um, I, I do have a little bit of sympathy for Facebook here because, you know, there's a lot of people that have come out and said, you know, just just block him like he's violated your policies, ban him. You would anybody else. It seems so straightforward, but he is the president of the United States who received 74 million votes and has served a term in the highest office in the country. And so if you're going to begin blocking the president, is that a precedent that you're setting? Because it could be well, a murky road forward after that point. Yeah, it is. And look, and I and I see all of I, I've seen countless tweets talking about this is a First Amendment right. This is a First Amendment right. Look, and again, I, it's I don't not profess that. Yeah. a U.S. lawyer by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but, 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 
Um, these are private companies and they have clear policies and procedures and you adhere to them when you choose to use their product and when you choose to register for their product. Um, and as private companies, they can choose to cut you off from access to that product if you do not meet their terms and conditions. This is this is a contract. It's a contract that you choose to engage in when you use their services. So, you know, this idea that you're, you're stifling free speech um, or that you're taking a voice away from the president. First of all, the idea that you're taking the voice away from the president is just strikes me as completely ludicrous because this is an individual who has a greater platform than arguably any other you know human being on planet Earth. Um, but again, I, they're they're different. They're different issues. They're private companies. So do they have a great deal of control and power? Um, you know, monolithic in, in, in a sense, absolutely. Should they have that kind of control and power? I, I, I don't know, but that strikes me as a completely different question as the free speech issue. I'm always very curious at China's reaction to these things because it's a fascinating country. And, you know, there were a lot of comments last week along those lines because China's kind of gloating, actually, because they've done so well with COVID-19 and, and the U.S. has had such a mess with, with the you know, the, the riots in the summer and the election and COVID running rampant there. So so China feels very emboldened. So people took the opportunity to say, oh, is this your free speech in America? You know, companies just, you know, shut down an account of somebody you don't like. And yeah, it fell on me to kind of explain to several people that, you know, it's no different than a shop requiring you to wear a shirt, like no shirt, no shoes, no service kind of thing. Like private companies can set the boundaries around this stuff. And yeah, you, you don't have to use the product if you don't like it. So I, I want to go into the, the statement by, by Zuckerberg here, because I, there's a couple of points um, I want to make. So you and we have talked on the show about context. And this is what makes PR difficult sometimes, is there's no, if A happens, do B. Because it might be different. The tone, the news cycle, the location, the time of year, like all of these things could play into how, how these things are put together. So the context for this, Trump has been using Facebook for years, I believe a decade. Um, and he routinely posts content that would violate Facebook's policies or comes very close to doing it. So it's not new. This is definitely not new. Number two, there is palpable anger in the United States right now by, you know, tens of millions of people um, over what happened at the U.S. Capitol. And, and because it just happened, feelings are raw. This is still emotional. Um, you know, and this is the sort of really emotionally driven environment that we're in right now. And then the third point, there is extra anger towards Facebook here because many people have called for a ban previously and they've called for his account to be censored previously because they saw something like this coming at some point. And so there is that feeling of wanting to say, look, we told you and you didn't do it. And now look, now we've got thugs in the, you know, in, in the Capitol building and in Nancy Pelosi's office. So those three points really set the tone. And then when Facebook is going to take action, they have to recognize that and reflect that they understand. And that's the one thing Facebook has seemed to fail at you know, almost all the time. Zuckerberg's not able to empathize or understand the severity. Like he feels in over his head to me. But here's, here's the thing, Ewan, in the first sentence, President Donald Trump, this is the quote again, President Donald Trump intends to use his remaining time in office to undermine the peaceful and lawful transition of power. That's not entirely true. Indeed, he has been using the platform 
to undermine this transition, but he did it before in 2016. Prior to 2016, you and Trump said repeatedly that you know he was asked by reporters, if you lose the election, will you concede? And he said, you know, maybe not. And he's been consistent over this for years. So this didn't just crop up 10, 10 days ago or two months ago. This, is, this has been what he's been saying openly for many, many years. So I found that opening line to, to really miss the mark. On the second sentence, actually the very next sentence in here, quote again, his decision to use his platform to condone rather than condemn the actions of his supporters at the Capitol building has rightly disturbed people in the U.S. and around the world. Disturbed. Do you think that was an adequate descriptor? You know, this is what happens when you have a for-profit enterprise tasked with trying to play a moral role or take a moral stand on a particular political issue. I think companies can, though. I, like, you, you can take a moral stand, but you do have to live up to your values in that case, right? Well, and, and I, don't, I don't disagree with you. And we, we spoke a lot about this last year around the, the Black Lives Matter movement and how some companies responded very, very well and how some companies' responses were completely and utterly tone deaf. So I, I don't disagree with you. There is a way to do it. Um, I, I don't know that this uh, specific statement or approach was necessarily the, the, the best example. No, I, honestly, I find this pretty easy. I mean, companies are not going to come out and support what happened in the Capitol, obviously. I mean, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, it's really hard to come out and say, you know, you support sort of a violent ransacking of the Capitol. So anyway, but I, I want to focus on the word disturbed in here, because I think it, it really also shows what I mentioned, which is he doesn't understand the severity. So I was thinking, you know, what word might I use in there? Outraged would be one. You know, if, if we put that word in there and we say, you know, Trump refused to condemn the actions of his supporters at the Capitol building, which has rightly outraged people in the U.S., I think that sounds more, more, more powerful. And you may also want to say something like and led to one of the darkest days in the country's history. I think these are these are things that you can say because these are things people are are feeling. It's OK to say them. And I think, you know, the, the way it's worded, it makes me think Facebook still doesn't understand. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, given what what transpired, Cam, it's pretty difficult to be hyperbolic about it. Yeah. I mean, this is absolutely I mean, that image of the Confederate flag, you know, being walked through through the Capitol. I mean, it's uh, yeah. I mean, how do you how do you use language that could even possibly be interpreted as as hyperbole, given what went up, went, went on? I mean, uh, you're sort of you should really have free reign here to say anything you need to say as a company to get the message across. People need to know that the company that they're doing business with or trust or, or whatever understands, they understand their life or their thinking or, you know, even these current events uh, kinds of things that they, that they get it. And Facebook over and over again shows that they don't, but there is an interesting sort of side to this human that I think kind of touches on what you do as well. Internally, as, as this capital siege was taking place, there were several threads on the internal chat board at Facebook where employees were quite angry and, you know, were saying that, um, you know, Donald Trump had to go. So one employee wrote, again, this is his quote, 
Donald Trump has directly incited a terror attack on Capitol Hill. We need to take down his account right now. This is not a moment for half measures. Facebook ended up freezing these three threads, stopping any further discussion internally. The company was contacted by BuzzFeed about this. And Facebook, they had a brief statement that said, our employees are actively discussing today's horrible events internally. That was it. Uh, She didn't say, you know, why the company had temporarily paused or or, or stopped the discussion on some of those threads. Um, And Mark Zuckerberg himself then sent a message to staff. So this is an internal message at Facebook. And he said, quote, I'm personally saddened by this mob violence, which is exactly what it is. The peaceful transition of power is critical to our democracy, and we need our political leaders to lead by example and put the nation first. I found this problematic as well, because the messages that have come out from that message board were not talking about the political leaders. They were talking about Facebook's role in this event. Those are different. They're related, but they're different. I think it's easy to say that, you know, our political leaders should lead by example. I've said many times, I I don't even think that Trump caused all this. I think there, there was a lot of resentment and anger built up over many years and maybe even decades. And then you have this confluence of, you know, really strident media, the internet, conspiracy theories grow, trust breaks down. And Facebook has a big role in that. It really does. And so, again, Zuckerberg didn't seem to recognize and just basically blamed it on politicians. So I'm breaking this down, you, in terms of PR and how we look at it. But personally speaking, I'm just really disappointed with the company. I mean, you know, I've left it many years ago. Actually, I don't I don't use the platform. I still have an account, but I don't use it. I do think it matters sort of who you do business with. And you have to feel comfortable with who you're giving money to. So that's where we're at. And I mean, what's, what, what's your take, Ewan? Anything stand out about this for you? Well, again, I think where where you're going to run, we're going to continue to run into problems is where you have these sort of monolithic companies in a particular in a particular area, Twitter and Facebook, notably, right? And I mean, there's been obviously a lot of press um, around Facebook and its attempt to to quash or buy up any potential competitors that have attempted to emerge in the marketplace. And this is kind of the result. This is a byproduct of that. When you effectively only have one voice um, that's out there, then they get to control the message. And effectively, that's that's what has happened. I mean, you can, again, to your point, you can point fingers um, at, at any number of individuals on um, either end of the political spectrum and what they may have posted on the platform, whether or not it was appropriate, whether or not it was true or fictitious. Um, But the reality is, is that at the end of the day, we've effectively created a marketplace where one company um, gets to make those determinations. And I think that's remarkably problematic and something that really, really needs to be addressed and explored coming out of this. I don't even think it's one company. It's one person that's making these decisions. Zuckerberg does sign off on these things himself. So he's got a lot of a, a lot of influence in this. But anyway, I, I think this is something obviously that's going to continue because the root cause of all of this has not been resolved. And I think ultimately technology companies and social networks in particular are going to have to be 
really clear about their guidelines and then follow them, you know, not create exceptions, you know, for a bunch of different either people or positions or, or whatever it might be, because it's sort of their contract with us, with the users, you know, what they will tolerate, what they won't. And we are seeing other social networks really quickly get momentum. I was on Parler the other day just to check it out. It's, you know, among the top five apps, I think, on the Apple App Store. So people can move. Uh, Facebook's not going to be here forever. Uh, and I think they, they will hasten their decline uh, by doing things like this. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR and Law Podcast. Okay, Ewan, before we get to check this out, um, you, you talked off the top about um, sort of employees when they're out and about and doing something that they could hurt the reputation of their employer, uh, which is a, a great topic. And we have covered that a lot. So I just want to mention them for our listeners here. Uh, episode 20, uh, 35, uh, we dealt with an anthem singer uh, who, who was fired. Episode 29, the famous Jeffrey Tubin story in The New Yorker. Uh, when that happened in episode 32, we talked about it again when he was fired. Episode 20, a baseball announcer, Ewan, was fired, if you recall. Uh, and episode 19, the McDonald's Donald's serial dating CEO. So there's actually five episodes there that I've talked about, and each one is quite unique. I definitely recommend uh, diving into those. I met somebody the other day, you and socially, who works in PR, and she said she loves the podcast and she really liked the McDonald's version, uh, the McDonald's episode. Uh, she found it really interesting. So I, I definitely recommend that. What do you recommend, you and what's on your plate? Well, you know, I was sitting down on a Friday night looking for something to watch. I was on HBO. And I came across the the documentary 537 Votes. Mm, this what's, was, what's uh, that? Was, I'm not familiar. It was actually released in October uh, of last year, so sort of in advance of the U.S. election. Um, it deals with the Florida recount uh, during the 2000 ah, right. election. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was the you know the the Bush v. Gore election. It was fascinating. I just couldn't help but go over that, you know, that that great adage of those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it or those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it because there's just there's so much in in the 2000 election that sort of spoke to what we were most recently seeing and a lot of stuff that I was familiar with. And, you know, remember the whole Elian Gonzalez controversy yeah. cam um, and and the influence on that. But effectively, the Miami-Dade County of florida ended up holding the balance of power uh in terms mm-hmm. of who is going to be president of the united states and the way that the two political parties mobilized around that recount it's incredible and the the access to both democratic and republican operatives that were involved um, in overseeing that recount and attempts to halt that recount it's really, really fascinating in terms of what goes on internally and behind the scenes with these parties and what happens when you take a win at any cost. Just a fascinating documentary. Some of the, some of the access and some of the information they have, I think, is still, is still uh, worth your time, regardless of where you fall on the spectrum on this. Cool. Yeah, I will check that out. For me, I, I want to recommend something really positive <laughs> instead, um, which, which really is a podcast that I, I can't even remember how I stumbled across it. But I did just before sort of the Christmas break, and I've completely dove into it since then. It's called Heavyweight. Uh, it, it's done by Gimlet Media, which was purchased by Spotify, and it's a show hosted by 
Jonathan uh, Goldstein, who was a Canadian. He was a film critic in Montreal. He actually grew up in Montreal. And then he went from there to CBC and then down to the U.S. where he worked on This American Life. Um, And he has this podcast. And here's the premise, Ewan. Someone reaches out. He looks for people who have either a problem or something unresolved from their past. And then he goes about fixing it or bringing people together, or whatever it might be. There's some really crazy ones that have come up. But the show is so incredibly produced. Uh, I think it's incredibly powerful. And it's very uplifting also. And, and you realize that people really are carrying around a lot of baggage. And to hear them once that's lifted is amazing. And so there's so many episodes of this that I, I recommend. Right now, because of the pandemic, um, obviously they haven't been able to travel and do things. So there are episodes called check-in, heavyweight check-in, one, two, three, whatever. I think you can skip those for the most part. Go into the real episodes. And you can start right at number one, which is called Buzz. Um, and it's actually something to do with his dad. Um, but I, I just think they're, they're just excellent. And they're so good to listen to um, and highly recommend. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, I haven't, I've never heard of that. So I will absolutely check that out. That's yeah, good. for sure. All right. Uh, anything else you want to add, Ewan, before we wrap up? No, it's good to be back. Uh, For sure. You know, I've, I've, I've missed you. Um, yes, I, I, you hope, I, I hope you had a had a good holiday with, um, you know, with the, well, I guess I was going to say with your family, but of course I know you aren't meeting with your family and uh, I, we were all largely cut off from our, from our family. So I hope all of our listeners had a good, safe, healthy holiday. I hope they're staying safe and healthy out there. Um, and you know, Hey, I hope, I hope those vaccines do the round, do the round sooner rather than later, Cam. Cause, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really starting to get, uh, no, get down. No kidding. Yeah. And happy new year to everyone as well. So fingers crossed for 2021. Um, so thanks for joining us on the first show of the new year. We've got all kinds of stuff planned uh, this year. So I think it's going to be quite exciting, actually. Don't miss a show. Please subscribe in your podcast app of choice or to our YouTube or SoundCloud channels. And we're on social media and you can get our newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Happy new year and light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.